So today we're going to talk about, uh, as we get into John 6, John 6 is, like I said, the longest chapter in the whole Gospel of John. And John chapter 6 deals with a variety of issues, one of which is the electing and sovereign grace of God over our salvation. So we're going to talk about election and predestination. And some of you are thinking, of course you are, you're Presbyterians. We are, we are defined in many ways as, as those who, who hold this doctrine. It's, I mean, use it to define us. And that's okay. We, we aren't the only Christians that believe this doctrine, but we do believe that it's, it's biblical and true. Uh, what's interesting in this passage, and I, and I think it's true in, in all of Scripture, but here in particular, Jesus brings up this doctrine not to show some sort of theological prowess or to surprise people or to shock people by, you know, by these, this doctrinal truth or whatever. Um, he brings up the doctrine of election to comfort those who rightly understand what he's been teaching them uh, in, the, in the previous, you know, leading up to this. Last week we looked at the doctrine of total depravity or radical corruption, and we're going to review that today, at, um, again this week, because it's only in light of our understanding of our sinfulness, our depravity, our corruption, um, that we come to truly appreciate or even understand the, the need for or the reality of the, the doctrine of election and predestination um, and understand why this doctrine is so comforting uh, to sinners. And so we're going to start by, by reading our passage for today. We're going to read John chapter 6, verses 41 uh, down through 51. Give great attention to the reading of the very Word of God. It says, So the Jews grumbled against him, against Jesus, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Well, Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day, as it is written in the prophets. And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. They're speaking about himself. In 47, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for your word. Would you give us understanding of the conviction, to, as we prayed earlier, to live under the authority of your word? And uh, where, it's, uh, where it's maybe hard to understand in places like this might be uh, for some of us, would you give us deeper understanding? Open our eyes to see the truth and the beauty of the gospel. Thank you for Jesus, who is the bread of life, who came down from heaven to give us everlasting nourishment, everlasting life. Help us to be satisfied in him alone for our salvation. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so this paragraph starts, of course, with the people grumbling because Jesus, who they know, they know, you know some of them, at least in this crowd, know his mother and father, and he's claiming that he's come down from heaven. And they're, and they're like, this guy's crazy. 
We know his mom and dad. He was born right in, over there in the manger, you know, in the middle of that, whatever, what, what they knew about that. But they know this guy's just a human. He looks like us. He talks like us. He smells like us. He, you know, he's a man. Now, we know, because of the revelation that's been given to us in God's word, that he is a man. But he's also God. He's God in the flesh. Something they didn't have eyes to see at this point. They're just thinking fleshly, just like they have been the whole time. Remember, they're grumbling. And remember, we said that chapter 6 is where John kind of points out that Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses. Remember the people in Moses' day, right? What were they doing? Walking around in the wilderness. God's feeding them and giving them drink, all that they need for life. And what are they doing? Grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. So once again, John points out the grumbling here to help us connect those things. He's still showing us how Moses is the fulfillment of what Moses said and did and wrote is in Jesus. So that's kind of the, the canopy over this. But as we think about this, as we get into the meat of this passage, we recognize that the, the main problem that this crowd standing before Jesus, the main problem that they are facing is that they are failing to trust in Jesus. They see Jesus, but they don't believe in him. Remember, he said that last week. They may, you know, they may think they're... Their main problem is hunger or sickness or, or whatever. But their main problem is unbelief. They need to trust in the Savior that's standing before them. And he's going to help them understand this. Remember last week he told him, he said, you have seen me and yet do not believe. We talked about how we're all naturally blind to the spiritual truth that we need a Savior to deliver us from our sinfulness. We, are, we looked at Ephesians 2 last week. That we are dead in our sins and trespasses. We're, we're not sick, just kind of unable or unwilling to see because of something little in our lives. We're blind to the truth. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. What do dead men do? Nothing. We need to be made alive. That's what we're going to talk about today. How does that happen? Um, the, there's an old illustration that used to be shared when I was a kid. And um, <clears throat> at the end of some sermon or <clears throat> some teaching, you know, the pastor or somebody would say, Here's what's going on. You've heard the preaching of the gospel. Jesus has thrown you. You're floating out at sea all by yourself with no hope. And Jesus has tossed you a life preserver. Now, here's the great moment of decision. You need to grab the life preserver that is Jesus. That's a, There's some truth in that to some degree. Here's the problem with that illustration. You're not floating out at sea. You're dead. Your body is filled up with water and you floated to the bottom of the sea. You're dead. You're not grabbing anything at this point. Unless there's a sovereign God who can make you alive. And what we're going to see today is that is exactly what we have. We are dead at the bottom of the sea. And God in his grace has sent Jesus to come and not just offer us salvation, but to grab us off the bottom of the sea, pull us to the surface, breathe new life into our lungs, make us completely and absolutely new. And our only response at that point because of his grace that's at work is in us is we're going to go, I'm going to worship that guy that saved me. That's the beauty of the gospel. We're not just sick. We're dead. We need someone who gives new life not just a band-aid. We need Jesus. And the beauty of this passage is that's what he gives us. Remember, we said in Ephesians 2, 1, he said, we are dead in our sins and trespasses. But in our call to worship this morning, we said what? But God, 
who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, has made us alive in Christ. Do you see that? That's the illustration. We're dead in our sins and trespasses, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, has made us alive together with Christ. Not a band-aid, new life. He's made us alive together with Christ. Left to our own natural will or desires, we will not, we will not choose God. I said last week, we will always choose not God. If, the, if that illustration were true and we were floating at sea, they could throw all the life preservers we want to and none of us would take it. We would think, I've got this. I know I'm floating out in the middle of a sea and I can't see land anywhere and there's storms coming, but I've got this. I'll be okay. That would be our reaction because of our sinfulness. We're, we naturally will not choose. Romans chapter 3. Let me just read a couple of verses here for you from Romans 3. I think we looked at them last week. Let's look at them again. This is our state without Christ. None is righteous. I mean, Romans 3.10. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Who's that talking about? Us. Before Jesus. And if you aren't a Christian, if you haven't trusted in Christ alone for salvation, that's true of you right now. That is our natural bent. To love something other than Jesus, than than God. Notice here in, in John 6, Jesus brings up this truth, like we said, to give hope to people who are lost in the blindness of their sin. If you're blind and can't see, or dead, the bottom of the sea. What do you need? You need a miracle. You need someone to open your eyes that you might see the truth that's before you. You can't open your own eyes. You're blind, right? Go back to that illustration. You need someone, you can't even, not even just a doctor. You need a miracle worker. You need someone who can take the blindness from your eyes that you might see the truth. And Jesus is saying, I am that man. I'm the one who's come to open up your eyes to who you really are, a sinner in need of a Savior, and who I really am, talking about himself, the Savior who's come to redeem sinners. We can't see that truth naturally. We need a supernatural intervention. The gospel comes along, Jesus comes along and does that. God's electing love is the miracle that we need. Think about Adam and Eve. They were walking in the garden with God in sinless perfection before the fall. God had created them. He had given them to each other. He was walking, remember, he walked in the cool of the garden with them. They were in a relationship with God. But then something happened. Sin entered the world. And God had told them, if you eat of that one tree, you'll die. So, clear. The wages of sin is death. That's what he was teaching them. Of course, the, the, the serpent comes along, tempts them. They eat of the tree, and they experience death. They start understanding that there's shame and guilt involved in that. They go and cover themselves with fig leaves. They hide from God. God comes into the garden and calls out their names, and they're like, we're hiding over here in the bushes. And it, there's a brokenness in that relationship. But what does God do to them? He had told them, if you eat that tree, you die. Does he kill them immediately? No, he's merciful and gracious towards them. He, he does cast them out of the garden, but not before his fatherly love causes them to make clothes for them to cover their shame. 
So he loves them, but he does send them out, signifying the brokenness in the relationship between him and his people, and these the, the people that have sinned. But why did he, but they didn't experience at that point eternal death immediately. Why? Because God is gracious and merciful, because in his love and mercy, God made a covenant of grace with Adam as humanity's representative, as our federal head, we might say. He, he promised, God promised that he would send a savior to crush Satan, crush sin and hell and the grave for everyone who trusts in that promise that God would save them from their sin. And so going forward, all of those who put their faith and trust in that promise or the promises that follow that gave us more light to that were saved just like Adam and Eve were. They trusted in that first promise that God would redeem them. And so God, being a gracious and covenantal loving God, instead of crushing humanity at the moment that sin entered the world, he showed us mercy and offered us salvation. Come and trust in the Savior that I'm going to provide. So he calls us all to that. You know, when, when given the free choice in the garden, what did Adam and Eve choose? Not God. They chose the apple. They chose what they thought was better than what was truly better, just like we all would. We, didn't, we can't stand here on this side and go, well, Adam and Eve just messed everything up. I would never do that. No, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yet God, like we said, in his mercy, spared their lives, told them how to be made right with him by trusting in his promise to save, ultimately the promise that Jesus was coming. And then he worked in their lives so that they would believe. And that is essentially the story for everyone who's redeemed. We all sin. If you're saved, it's because God showed you mercy, opened up your eyes to see the truth about him and you, and, and compelled you to faith that you would believe. We needed rescue. God sent a rescuer. Here's how the, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, the Shorter Catechism answers it. It says, what is effectual calling? That calling that comes from God to redeem us out of our sin. What is that? It says, effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, showing us that we, we are sinners, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, that's the making us alive part, breathing new life into us, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ, who is freely offered to us in the gospel. So God offers us a Savior. Like we said, naturally, we would resist that. We have to be made alive in order to want that, to turn from ourselves, from our sin, to turn unto him. So we talk about this, that we're unable to come to God in ourselves, but we're enabled to come to God by his grace. And so the question is, you know, do we have a choice in this? Everybody likes to talk about free will. Presbyterians are those people that don't believe in free will. Well, it depends on how you define free will. Um, we have a whole chapter in our confession on the free will of man. But here's what happens. The question is, do we have a choice? And like I said, yes. But left to our natural desires, we will never choose to submit ourselves to a God who's in authority over us. We will always choose to be in authority over ourselves, to choose some way, some, some other way besides that. But God, in his love for the elect, supernaturally awakens us and gives us the desire to choose him. And so do we choose to follow God? Yes! But not of our own will, because of our renewed will. And how is that will renewed? Supernaturally. 
His work within us is irresistible. In verse 37, um, is that right? Not 37, sorry. In, in 44, it says, Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. And then he says this, he says, um, I'm sorry, I am in 37, 37 last week, where he said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father, what? Gives me will come to me. So Jesus has a people that are being given to him by God the Father. And Jesus is saying all that God gives are going to come. It's irresistible grace. They all come unto him. Here's what um, verse 44 says. Um, 40, um, yeah, 44. So in 43, he says, do not grumble amongst yourselves. In 44, he says this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Let's talk about that word, draw. There. Um, R.C. Sproul has a great illustration of this. He says the word there, the word draw, is the same word that's used when we talk about drawing water out of a well. You have to, you know, you draw water from a well in some way. He says it's foolish to go and stand up above a well and yell, here, water, water. Here, water, water. And expect that water is going to spew it's not the nature of water to just rise out of a well without something impacting it. So, you, you know, here water, it's not going to happen. It's not a geyser. We're not talking about a geyser. We're talking about a well. So what do we have to do to get the water out of the well? Well, something outside of the water has to come into the water and draw the water out of the well. So we'll take a bucket, we'll dip it into the water, it fills with water, and then we draw the bucket out of the water. That's the illustration that Jesus uses in this passage. He says, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him like one who draws water out of a well. That's the saving grace of God that he draws, he woos, and in doing that, he changes our will. And so the question that always comes up is, is there then a truly free offer of the gospel? Can we truly go out to our neighbors and to all the world and say, come unto Christ. Believe on the name of Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Is there a true free offer of the gospel? Yes. Because everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And we don't know who God's drawing. But we do know how he draws because he ordains the means as well as the ends. He doesn't just ordain that people come. He ordains the method in which they come. Do you know what he says that method is? The proclamation of the gospel. Pulpits, missionaries, friendships, family members, people saying to someone else, there's hope for you. You don't have to remain in your sin because Jesus had come. Would you trust in Jesus? And we offer that to everyone. And everyone who believes in that will be saved. We just happen to know because we've read the other parts of Scripture that that happened because God was drawing them. Does it matter in that moment that they understand how that happened? No. R.C. Sproul talks about how in heaven, you can imagine, and he knows he's making this up, but imagine there's a doorway. And on one side of the doorway, it says, everyone who calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. And all those people who think Calvinism is crazy will look at it and go, see? Everyone, everyone, and we go, yeah, what's the problem with that? Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. He says, but if you go through on the other side of the door and you look at the other side of the door frame, it says, 
all those who enter here were predestined before the foundation of the world. And then the Calvinists go, see, we told you so. Now, are both true? The scripture says that both are true. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. All those who are saved were predestined and elected in Christ before the foundation of the world. They aren't antagonistic towards each other. Those things work together for the glory of God to redeem mankind. Man is, within that, though, man is completely responsible for his sinfulness and his choice to trust in Christ or not to trust in Christ. There is judgment coming for those who do not trust in Christ. And yet at the same time, God is completely sovereign over that choosing. I've used this illustration right here before, but I was having a conversation with someone a while back who was arguing with me about this. And they were, you know, they were just like, you know, free choice of the gospel, free choice. You know, I just, I can't believe this. And argued a, a, a traditional view of someone who's not a Calvinist, maybe an Armenian, who said, no, everyone has a seed of faith within them that they just need to, express they're denying that total depravity that we're dead they just think we're kind of sick it's the argument and so making that argument and i said listen look here's an here's an illustration i said imagine there's two twins bob and tom and bob and tom have never been separated if the, if the illustration would work in the end i would make them conjoined twins but it doesn't so let's imagine they're in a church that has sort of a call to salvation. We don't necessarily do it. There's always a call to salvation. You can believe in Jesus anytime. But some churches have, you know, sort of a, you know, walk up front and receive Jesus sort of time. So let's imagine that they've been in church their whole life in a church like that. They've heard the same songs, the same sermons, the same lessons, the same Bible stories. Everything's been the same for Bob and Tom. Nothing in their experience has been different. They've always been together. Well, one day, let's say when they're 18, 19 years old, they're sitting in church, the gospel is preached. After the preaching, the clear preaching of the gospel, the, the pastor says, everyone who wants to believe, come down. You know, if you want to trust in Christ, come down front and I'll pray with you right now. Well, let's say that Bob decides to walk down and talk to the pastor and receive Jesus, pray a prayer to receive Jesus. And Tom stands there in the pew and doesn't move. What's the difference in that moment between Bob and Tom? Everyone that I've ever asked that question to at this point says, well, the Holy Spirit was at work in Bob and not Tom in that moment. And I say, welcome to Calvinism. That's what we're saying. That salvation in that moment depends not on who wills or walks, but on God who gives faith. God, the reason that one believes and one doesn't in that moment, the other one may believe in the next five minutes or the next ten years, or we don't know. But in that moment, the reason that one of those twins came and one didn't to Christ is because God, through the Holy Spirit, is at work in them in that moment. That's the doctrine of election at work in that moment. That's how it plays itself out in space and time, in our experience. So the question, though, is... You know, when we see this, it's, okay, maybe it's here in this one verse in John 6, 44. Is it anywhere else in Scripture? Yes. Matter of fact, it is. In Ephesians 1, we've already talked about Ephesians 2, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. Let's see what Ephesians 1 says. Let me flip over there. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ 
according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Do you get that? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. There's Ephesians 1. If you go back to the beginning of the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, um, he's talking about Christ coming into the world and what has Christ come to do, or what is the result of that? He says, in 12 and 13, he says, But to all who did receive him, to receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Okay, how did that happen? Who? It says, uh, those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. So not because we were born into it, that's the blood part there, or because of the will of the flesh, something within us that expressed itself in faith that was already there. He says, nor of the will of man, not what we wanted, but of God. What's he saying? All of salvation is the work of the grace of God. And you go, you know, I'm sorry, I'll come back to that. Uh, we could look at Romans 9, I'm not going to. The whole chapter is kind of the go-to passage for us Presbyterians to go look and argue about election. I'm not going to get into all that. Um, in John 17, Jesus talks again about how God has given him a people. He talks about it kind of a little bit more at length there. God has given me. Those of you who have given me will come to me. All those sorts of things. He reiterates a lot of that stuff in John 17. But it's also found maybe in less explicit ways all throughout Scripture. We've already talked about Adam and Eve. We also can talk about Noah. Noah wasn't hanging out in the middle of a desert going, I think I should build a boat. Maybe I should build a boat. Should I build a boat? Maybe it'll rain. No. God spoke to him and said, Noah, it's going to rain. He's like, what's rain? This water is going to fall from the sky. It's all going to flood. You should build this massive, 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 massive boat. Remember, it wasn't the will of Noah to build a boat. It was the will of God who came into Noah's life. He said, I'm going to save you. Here's how I'm going to save you. Build a boat. What do you have to do? Believe. Trust that God. Because this whole, whole community is calling him a fool. No, you're stupid. I don't know. What is rain? You keep talking about rain. No, but he trusted God. Built a boat. Think about Abraham. Abraham was called away from his father's house to go to a land that he didn't know. Was Abraham looking to leave? No. We have no evidence of that. But God chooses him, makes him the father of a nation, says, you're going to be a father of a great nation. Abraham goes, I don't have any children. How can I be a father of a nation? I have no ancestors. I have no one to be a father for. He goes, no, no, no. You, old man, and your old wife, I'm going to give you a baby. Trust me. And through some wavering, eventually the baby is born. And God gives him a promise. I'm going to be a God to you and to your children after you and to all the the world, I'll be a blessing to all the world through you. Was Abraham, did that come from Abraham? No, it came from God. God called Abraham out and set him apart. Think about Moses. Moses is this murderer running, you know, running away from God and his people and from the, you know, from the Egyptians. And he goes up, and what does God give him? He's, he's perfectly content from what we can tell. And, you know, hanging out, being a shepherd, he's got a wife, all those things. God comes to him in a burning bush and says, Moses, take off your shoes. You're standing on holy ground before a holy God. Moses is like, that bush isn't burning up. This is weird. He says, what's going on? It's a miracle. God is calling him out. And he says, you're going to go back to Egypt and rescue my people. Was Moses looking to go back and fight with Pharaoh? No. But God calls him out and sets him apart. What about David? David, what's David doing? He's out in the fields doing his job. He's a shepherd boy. You know, 
Samuel comes to anoint the next king. God's told Samuel, go anoint the next king. And so they line up all of David's brothers because one of them surely going to be king. Not this little runt that we don't even, we're not even bothered to call him from the field. There's no way it's him. Remember Samuel goes down the line. Not him, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him, not him. If you've got another son, because this sitting, God's not telling me it's any of these guys. Well, yeah, the little runt David's out in the field. Well, go get him. And he comes up, and sure enough, this little boy David, he says, he is the one who's been chosen to be king. Was it in David? No, no one who knew David thought this is the guy. But God had chosen him to be the king. We think about Paul, one New Testament example. What was Paul doing? Running around persecuting Christians, celebrating the, the death of, of Stephen, right? He's on a rampage. He's got, he wants to see all the, all the Christians either repent, uh, you know, killed or, or imprisoned. And he's on the road. He's on the way to Damascus. He's going to arrest Christians. And God stops him in his tracks. Jesus shows up, blinds him because this illustration is still at work. He blinds him and he says, Saul, Saul, this is before he changed his name. So it's using this, you know, this Jewish name. Saul, what are you, you're persecuting me. He's like, who are you? I'm Jesus. He's like, no, really, you're real. This is real. That's all true. God, and then God opens his eyes spiritually and then physically after that and reveals to him this guy who's on track to murder Christians. That's his goal. All of a sudden, he's at the next town proclaiming that Christ is Lord. How does that happen? It happens because the supernatural grace of God is at work in the lives of people. And we're no different than those guys. We're no different than Paul. We may not be murdering Christians, but we're doing our own thing. We're doing what we think is good and right within ourselves. And God has to come into our world and open up our eyes to see that what we're following is the way that leads to death. And he calls us to a narrow road. Come and follow the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. That's the electing sovereign grace of God. We just don't understand before that that we were blind, that we were dead. We think we're doing okay. We're the guys who are following Jesus around going, give me some more food, Jesus. Give me some more food, Jesus. Give me some more food, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, you don't even know what you really need. You're blind to what you really need. You need something better than food. You need a savior. And the only way to realize that is to have our eyes open by the grace of God. If we have a problem with this doctrine, we go, well, that's not fair or whatever. We'll talk about fairness in a minute. That's not good. It's not right. It doesn't feel right. Okay, your problem isn't actually with God's sovereign choice of you. Your problem's with your depravity. You don't really believe you're a sinner on that level. To the degree that the scripture calls you to see that. You think, and eh, I got a little sin problem. And God says, you don't have a sin problem. You're dead in your sins. When we finally realize we're dead, we go, wait, I need hope from outside of myself. I need a savior. <laughs> That's God opening up our eyes, making us new, renewing our minds, our souls. No, it's not the existence of faith that saves us. Paul was full of faith. Paul was a faith-filled man. His whole life was about believing in God, trusting God, following God, following the rules of God. He would say, full of faith. Anybody who kind of looked at Paul would go, that, that guy believes something. It's not 
the existence of faith. It's the object of our faith that saves us. It's putting our faith in Jesus Christ that saves us. Paul didn't go from being not a man of faith to a man of faith. No, he went from a man of false faith to a man of true faith. Putting his faith and trust in the right thing, in Jesus. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We turn back to Ephesians. We talked about Ephesians 1, teaching election. Ephesians 2, teaching our death, that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. But look at Ephesians. Go down a little bit in Ephesians 2. 2, 8, 9, and 10 says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by what? By grace, by the gift of God, the free gift of God, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. What's the gift of God? The grace or the faith? Yes. The faith that you are expressing is a gift from God. It's not within you. It comes from outside of you. And he gives that to you. He imputes that to you like the righteousness that you get. And so you believe. So for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he not only calls us out, he sets us on a path that he's determined beforehand that we would live in. He calls us to true life. So what should happen at this point? Well, this should excite our souls. We sang earlier, and can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? That he for me who caused this pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? We also sang you know, we, about being a wandering sheep. We were all wandering sheep, out doing our own thing, lost in the field. Remember the, the parable of the one and the ninety-nine? That he, the shepherd leaves the 99 to go after the one. You're not the 99. We're the one. And he has come after us and rescued us and brought us home. Chased us down in our rebellion. Changed our hearts and won our souls. And he brings us all the way home to himself that we might live. And to live the life that he designed us to live. C.S. Lewis, who I don't think has probably ever been accused of being a Calvinist talks about his salvation. He says he was in his, in his room when he was a professor. I guess he was in his office or wherever. And he's talking about this and he says you know, that the, the truth came upon him. He tried to deny it. He'd go, I'm going to study more. I'm going to teach more. I'm going to you know, do my work more, work more. He said, but the more I thought about it, the more I kept thinking about this truth, of the God, this truth that I was hearing about, the, about God. He said, and so I'm chasing at I'm, I'm trying to deny this. I'm trying to deny this. He said, but eventually I just had to give up and I finally prayed, God save me. He talks about how he was the most reluctant convert in the history of Christendom. Here's what else he says. He says, amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. He says, for me, they might as well talk about the mouse's search for a cat. God closed in on me. You get it? God closed in on me. Why me and not others, though? We're going to sing in a few minutes how sweet and awesome is the place with God within the store. And it says, and then that song, he says, so why when all the world, it's just, why, why me? We don't know all the answers to that. You know, some things because God in his 
Sovereign love has, has chosen to love us and not others. And we go, well, isn't that just going to make you prideful? You're the chosen one of God. No, it should humble you because you know we've been talking ad nauseum about what we're saved from. If we understand that our sin is so obnoxious to God that he hates it, so much so that he sent his son into the world to die for it, then we would realize that our response to being saved should not be pride but humility. To praise God who saved us when we were unsavable from any earthly point of view. God comes from outside and redeems us and makes us his own. So many argue with the doctrine of elections, it's not fair. It's not fair. The reality is we don't want fair. We shouldn't want fair because here's what's fair. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. You want fair, you get eternal condemnation. You don't want fair, you want mercy. You want God to save you from your sinfulness. That's what we should want. So ultimately, we're left to trust that God is good. We know this because he sent Jesus to save us, to redeem us. And he's holy and right. Therefore, God is good and he doesn't make mistakes. And so whatever God does is always right. There's an old hymn called, Whatever God Ordains is Right. That's, that's what we believe. Even if we can't truly comprehend why maybe he does the things he does, we accept that as a part of creation, we recognize we're not the creator. He is the one who's sovereign over us. Here's how Isaiah says that. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. There are some things we're not going to completely figure out. And I think the whys of election are one of those things. And so it should produce humility within us. But here's what's not happening in the doctrine of election. There aren't a bunch of people wishing that they can get, on, get into heaven, standing at the door of heaven and knocking and going, God, I want to come in. Please let me in. Let me in. And God's going, I'm sorry, you're not one of the elect. I can't let you in. That's not happening. No one wants to serve God and submit to themselves to them of himself. Remember, no one seeks after God. No one chases after God. Romans 3. No one's there. Um, there's no illustration I heard where there's, you can imagine there's two buses. And on the bus, the one says heaven. And on the bus, the other one says hell or something, not heaven. And, and you're, you have a free choice to get on whichever bus you want to. You can get on the bus going to glory or you can get on the bus that's not going to glory. Every single one of us in our natural selves will choose the other bus for some reason. We, maybe we think it's more fun or more fulfilling or more whatever it is. But none of us are naturally getting on another bus. We look at that bus and think, I have no use for that bus. And so we're all in line to get on the bus that's going to hell. So here's how God's mercy works. He doesn't just stand up at the door of the bus going to heaven and go, guys, come on, what are y'all doing? You should know better. No, we don't know better. We're blinded by our sin. So what God does in his mercy is he starts going down the line of people in the line that are going to hell. And he starts grabbing us and dragging us and pulling us. And along the way, he changes our will. So eventually we say, yes, I want to go because I see that you love me because he opens our eyes to see that that bus, as fun as it looks, as fulfilling as it looks, is a road to, is a path to destruction. But the road to true life is filled with obedience and righteousness. And so he changes our hearts and gives us a desire for those things. And before we know it, we're on the bus and we're heading home. 
and you can't get off the bus. All who come to me, I'm going to carry them all the way to the end. That's the beauty of the gospel, salvation, that comes from Christ. If we go down to verses 50 and 51 in our passage today, we see some of what you know, how Jesus is talking about this. He is our only hope. He says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven. So that no one, may, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, maybe you're like, okay, all this flesh stuff's confusing to me. We're going to talk about that next week. The next passage gets deeper into that, so we'll talk about communion and some other things that have to do with flesh and how all that works out in the life of the church. But look, right now we got to remember. Here's what Jesus says. What's he saying there? He's saying essentially what he says in chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other path. There is no other way. There is no other avenue that leads to salvation. What we usually find in the act of being saved is that we have made a willful decision to follow Christ. But I think I mentioned this earlier, as we, as we study the scripture, we come to find out that the entire time what was really going on is God was at work in this mysterious, supernatural way to actively draw us to himself. So what should be our response to that? Praise him for his mercy. To overflow with praise. Here's what Ephesians 3 says. We've been kind of walking through Ephesians this morning. Ephesians 3 he kind of ends that first doctrinal section of the letter by saying this. He says, Now to him, Jesus Christ, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we think or ask, because none of us would think to ask for salvation even. He's done far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Where does this road lead? It leads to doxology, to praising God to singing His praises, to thanking God for His grace. But, and then the other thing, what are some action steps we could take? Well, because people are only saved by God, we should pray more. We see lost people, we should pray for them. Pray that God would redeem them. As we said, God ordains the ends as well as the means. He also ordains that His people would pray, and through those prayers, He would work effectually in the lives of people. How does all that work? I don't know, that's part of that mystery. But we know that God says pray, and then God says, I'm going to save people. We should pray that God saves people. We also should share our faith with them. Share the gospel with everyone. Why, but, but, you know, why pray and evangelize if God's already decided beforehand? Because he's ordained the ends as well as the means as well as the ends. He saves by sending us out into the world to proclaim the gospel. So we've got to go next door, down the street, around the world. God's calling us to go and take the good news of the gospel to all the world. He might bring his people home. So we pray because God's commanded us to pray. We share the gospel because God has commanded us to share the gospel. And then we live and praise to God, thanking God that he's a God who drags dead men and women, boys and girls, to himself. He draws us out of our death and into life. And so we need to plead with God to save more. That all the world may experience his mercy and plead with him to use us as instruments of his Sovereign grace in the world. What a privilege it is to be a part of the, the process of salvation in people's lives. So let's share the gospel. Let's pray. Let's believe. And let's praise God that even while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, he loved us. He demonstrated his love even while we were still sinners. 
by sending Jesus to die for our sins. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for being our God. We thank you that you have loved us. Even when we didn't know we needed to be loved, God, you loved us. And you sent Jesus to die for our sins. Would you help us to praise you for your sovereign grace in our lives? And then go and tell the whole world that everyone who believes in the name of the Lord will be saved. That all might hear, that all might believe. God, bring your people to yourself. Use us to do that. Help us to be active in proclaiming your glory. That all the world might hear your goodness. It's in your son's glorious and gracious name that we pray. Amen.